from now. somewhere on the internet, from <laughs> Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, from Israel on the internet, on Zoom. This is In the Blue Corner, the official podcast of the Israel Innovation Fund. I am David Hazoni, the executive director of the Israel Innovation Fund. We are together today with Adam Scott Bellows, the CEO and founder. Say hi, Adam. Hello. Of the Israel Innovation Great. Fund. And a special guest, an amazing guest. A, good a very friend, special guest. And one of the most influential influencers in the influenza world, which is the world we live in now. And that's Yaakov Katz. Yaakov Katz is the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. The Jerusalem Post is an extremely important, extremely influential, and I have to say, a exponentially increasing in quality on an exponential curve over a course of many years. It's qualitative doubling time of the Jerusalem Post is like a week. Thank you, David. We're using a lot of words that you hear now in all the health briefings, exponential growth, spread of right. virus, right? That's a lot of like... Right, because I've been staying language. at home working out and flattening my curve for the last month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope you're having more success than some parts of the world. Not at all, not at all. Anyway, we're really, really, really glad that you are joining us. You are one of the most important, not just journalists, but figures in journalism in our world. Let's go back, okay, to the beginning. At what point did you know you wanted to do journalism? The point was when I left my first job in journalism, and I missed it. I was out of the army. I'd applied to law school. I was supposed to start law school at Bar-Ilan University in October. And I was out in like March and I needed to find something to do. And I was able through connection, I got a job on Haaretz's English website. I spent about a year there and then I quit because once I started law school, I was like, it was just too much. And I got married, I was like married, law school and working, it was just, it was too much. And I was gonna be a lawyer, I was gonna make a lot of money, corporate law, was, my 10 year plan was become a, you know, finish law school, get a great, a great job, become partner, bring in the, you know, big buck, did not happen. <laughs> I was like halfway through my first year of law school and I was drowning and everything. And I said, listen, I gotta focus on what's important. That's law school, so I quit my job. And then after a few months, I was like, what the hell did I do? I missed this, I really miss it. It was exciting, it was fun, it was interesting. I didn't go back to Haaretz, but I was able to get a job at the Jerusalem Post. And that was 2003. I've pretty much been there ever since. That's where I found my passion. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, had, I had to leave it to appreciate it. What's been the most exciting thing since your time back at the Jerusalem Post as a military correspondent, as editor-in-chief? I mean, like, you've published, what, two or three books in that time as well? Three books, one on the nuclear strike in Syria, the Cold War between Israel and Iran. The military industrial complex. Like, yes. What year did that come out? 2017. I met with a lot of different people, right? Uh, they're all interesting at times. Some of them are boring. Some of them you get excited about, and then you're like, yeah, that wasn't too exciting. In 2006, I was then the military correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. And in June, I got invited by the Navy. For the first time, they were participating in maneuvers with the NATO naval forces in the Black Sea off the coast of Romania. So they were sailing from Israel for about two weeks. I was not gonna sail for two weeks. So I flew into Bucharest on a Thursday, spent the night there and then took a train, one of these like ancient old Soviet Union type of trains down from Bucharest to a city called Constanta, which is on the coast of the Black Sea. Now Constanta is a city which is pretty much known for its beaches, right? And they have apparently cool parties over the summer, but it used to have a Jewish community there. And the plan was check into a hotel, spend Shabbat there, eat my Shabbat meals on the Israeli Navy ship called the Eilat, which is a SAR-5 class Navy ship. And then Sunday morning, the maneuvers begin, they were going to set sail. 
So I got there Friday morning into Constanta, and I'd read online that there used to be this Jewish community. I found pictures of this ancient old synagogue that had been destroyed during the Second World War, during the Holocaust, no more Jews left in the city. But I start roaming the streets looking for the synagogue. I finally find it. it, took me a long time because I had the wrong address, whatever, I asked some people, find this building, I look up, you could see like where the tablets, the Luchot used to be, you could see them again, David, the Star of David, and there was this iron gate, I open it up, I walk into the courtyard, and I then walk inside the building, and it's a dump. The roof is like half fallen in, you could see where the, the, the front, where the, the Torah scrolls were kept, you could see in the middle where, they, where the cantor would recite the prayers, but everything was rubble, mattress, syringes. It was devastating to see. And I'm just standing there taking it all in. And as I'm standing there, I notice on the left, on the ground, is this tile. And it was a tile that had a Star David that was broken in half, blue and like gold painted. And I guess it was like part of this decoration that kind of went around the whole interior of the synagogue. And I'm standing there, should I take it? Should I not take it? Which I do. And it, before I can make a decision, these two men walk in. And they walk in through the door and they looked big and scary. And they had a dog with them also. And they said, they said, what are you doing here? And I turned around, I said, I'm just a tourist. I'm just looking, I'm sorry. They said, this is our home, you have to leave. And I got the hell out of there because I was sure it's about to be robbed or worse. Fast forward to that evening, Friday night, I'm on, the, I'm on the missile ship with the Israeli sailors. And I tell them the story of how I found the synagogue. And they're like, take us there. And I said, you gotta be kidding me because the port, the harbor is all the way at the bottom of the city. And, and the city's further up. And I'm like, I, I could barely find it during the day. This is 2006 pre-Waze and Google Maps and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't know how we'll find it. Like, let's try it. So we go up, middle of the night, pitch black, and we're searching for this place. Somehow, don't ask, I find it. This time, the, the metal gate is locked shut. So you couldn't even walk into the courtyard. So I said, sorry, guys, can't get in. They're like, they look at me like, do you know who we are? <laughs> you know? Like, do you know what we can do? Within three seconds, they jumped over the gate, right? I didn't even try to even pretend like I could climb the gate. Like I stood on the street side because I, I, you got, you know, you got to know what you can do in life. And they go inside and I say to them, when you get in on the left is that tile, bring it out to me. I want that tile. So they go in, they spend a few minutes in there. They bring me out the tile. The tile today is on the wall of my home here in Jerusalem. In Jewish tradition, we have what's called a Zecher Lachurban, a memorial to the destruction. I think there's no better destruction than a piece of, a, of an ancient, of an old synagogue that was destroyed during the Second World War. I tell you the story because on Sunday we set sail. What happened on Sunday? Sunday morning, the NATO maneuvers begin, but another thing happened on Sunday back in Israel. That was the morning that terrorists from Hamas, from the Gaza Strip, tunneled into Israel and kidnapped Gilad Shalit. I got off the ship a couple days early to get back to Israel to cover the ensuing operation in Gaza. And two weeks later, you guys remember what happened, the Second Lebanon War broke out. So I always think about, you say, what's the most incredible story I have? It's not just one story, it's I feel to an extent that I've been privileged in my little world, in my little way. And, and this one story just encapsulates it all to, to feel the arc of history of the Jewish people, in, in, in modern time at least. To be in Romania, to be in a synagogue that was destroyed during our darkest moment as a people, right, with the Holocaust. To then board our most powerful naval ship that projects power, not just around Israel's borders, but far away in places like the Black Sea but then come back home because the threats are still there and they're coming at us from Gaza and they're coming at us from Lebanon. And all of that I got to experience in the span of just three weeks. I've been privileged to, to see this, to experience it, to witness it and to tell Israel's story to the world. Your newest book is called Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. It was just announced as a finalist for the Sammy Roar 
Literature Prize. So the editor was Elizabeth Disagard. So you wrote a book about Israel's uh, attack on the Syrian nuclear site. That was back, that was what, 2008? 2007, the strike took place. Syria was building a, a secret nuclear reactor. Uh, it was a plutonium reactor, is that right? Yes. It was a nuclear reactor for the purpose of building a nuclear bomb. Clear, cut and dry, very, very. Correct. And Israel bombed it. And nobody knew about it <laughs> until George Bush's memoir. You know, his memoir kind of publicly brought it out to light, but there was the arguments that went on between him and Ulmer. Right, and how they both saw things differently. And that was something that was very revealing. And I go into a lot of detail and in the book is about the the, the, the interesting part of think of the, the book is it has all the cool ingredients for a, a, a really, you know, gung-ho Hollywood kind of, you know, Israeli macho military success, right? It starts with Mossad uh, breaking into a hotel room in Vienna, Austria and stealing the contents of a computer of a Syrian nuclear scientist and discovering their pictures of this nuclear reactor that's being built with North Korea in northeastern Syria. And then you get special forces that raid the place to get soil samples and pictures. And then the ultimate bombing. That's all cool. But what makes the story, and this is what I was trying to say before, what makes it so interesting is that it is about decision-making and how our leaders make difficult decisions. And you had the Israeli prime minister who wanted to attack. You had the American president who said, no, we should go a diplomatic route. And then you had the Israeli who said to the American, Omer saying to Bush, unacceptable what you're proposing, right? I have to stand up and defend and keep my country safe. And, and you see the divide, you see how they work together, you see how they differ and disagree, but you see how ultimately that doesn't lead to a crisis between our two countries. Have you ever thought of making a treatment to sell it as a movie? We've had some interest. It, it, this is a difficult uh, market. It's a difficult industry. But what do you think is the, the main difference between what happened with Syria versus Iran? They work together. When you work together and you see there, there's, there was a respect and a mutual uh, appreciation between Olmert and, and Bush, right? And... They, they understood what each side stood for. They understood why each side saw things differently, but they were able to respect that and let each side do what it needed to do. I think what later happened between Netanyahu and Obama, and I don't want to point fingers, I think there were mistakes that were done by both sides. But I think that you need to build a relationship that is based on mutual appreciation, understanding, and respect. That's, the, that's how we got through that crisis of 2007. We've had a lot of fun with these podcasts, and we had a lot more fun, I have to say, when we were doing them in person at the King. Person, definitely. But what is person anyway? Like all of this, I'm starting to think that that world that we all talk about, where we all sat in the same room and people played games out on grassy fields with thousands of people around them, I'm starting to think that never really existed. And all we've ever had is Zoom. What do you think about that, Yakov? I think everything has changed. I mean, I can tell you, I don't know about sports. I was never a big sports guy myself ever since uh, leaving Wrigley Field behind in Chicago. When you watch the Cubs win a game at Wrigley, it's like, where are you going to go to Teddy Stadium in Jerusalem to watch Beitar? I mean, like, yeah. But my point is, you know, I mean, look, everything's changed. I can tell you that the way we're putting on a newspaper today is unlike anything. Had you asked me a year ago, half a year ago, is it possible that one day you'll have everyone working from home and you'll still be printing out a paper and still going to, you know, be circulated every day? You know, online's much easier. Just update the website. You can do that from anywhere. 
I would say, I, I don't even, you know, how do I wrap my head around that? But within the span of two weeks, we had to set up the ability and the servers and the system and, and the capability to be able to keep this machine going at a time that I think we're needed more than ever, right? People rely on the news and we're seeing that in our numbers and in our increase in terms of traffic online, which is through the roof for over 100% more this month than last month. The exponential and, growth, I told you. Exactly. And we're seeing that also in terms of uh, even print subscriptions, people who are holed up at home here in Israel. They want news. Everybody wants news. Everybody wants to know what's going on. Just like I want to know what's going on. What you guys want to know what's going on. And, and we're constantly hunting for, for a glimmer of hope, for some exit strategy from this whole mess, uh, whatever it might be. But that, that, that's what's made, I think, our raison d'etre even more essential. What was the hardest part of that transition? On a personal level, it's not always easy to work at home when you got four kids who are also quarantined up at home with you. I know, David, you can relate to that as well. And, you know, so that just makes it a little more complicated. And, you know, when you're at work, on a, just on a personal level, you're at work, you're away. So like the kids want you, okay, but you're not available, right? When you're home, you can lock the door, but they can bang on the door, right? And they expect an immediate solution to whatever problem they're dealing with. So that, you know, that just makes things a little more complicated. But I think what makes it more difficult as a manager or as someone, you know, I like to be in the newsroom. I like to get that flow and, and, and the feel and have things moving. And we don't have that nowadays. So you create a virtual newsroom, right? We do Zoom calls or on WhatsApp is like, you know, our bloodline to the world. You try to make up and compensate, but it's not the same, right? There's nothing like being out. There's nothing like going out into the field and feeling it. You know, a few days ago, I just had to get out. I got in the car and, and drove from, the, I didn't tell my wife because she would have flipped out, but I went to Meosharim, right? The neighborhood here in Jerusalem where there is- You've an got a press pass too, right? So yeah, can... so I can, I can get back. I can get through any police checkpoint. And I had to pass a few on my way in there, but a reporter needs to be out in the field. That's where every story that I've ever reported in my career, it's one thing to make, I could do phone calls and phone interviews, but if you're not out there and feeling it and breathing it and smelling it and seeing it, it's not the same. can't tell you what it's like to hear you describe your job like that. I mean, like you obviously love what you do, man. Like uh, very few people well, speak with that kind of passion. I have passion for that part of my job. Sadly, when you become editor of a newspaper, for better or for worse, your job is not just being out in the field and writing color stories and doing cool interviews and sailing on missile ships and flying on military planes. That I, I used to do when I was a kid, I say, you know, back when I was a military reporter. But nowadays I got to balance spreadsheets and look at, you know, financials and take care of uh, very complicated and complex uh, financial reality for a news organization as well, which is, you know, what we're going through. You guys know, like I do. We're looking at over a million Israelis right now who are unemployed. And, and part of what I am trying very hard to do, and with some success, but, you know, that's as of today, it could all change tomorrow, is to try to keep this paper going, keep people employed. You guys don't really do subscriptions, right? It's all, all your revenue is from advertising, is that right? We have multi-sources or multiple sources. I just found it really interesting that you said, and you were talking about keeping people employed. And, like, there are a lot of people right now who are unemployed, who have lost their jobs. And there's a smaller group of people who are running their own operations like, like you are and I am. And I have never felt what I felt before until this happened in terms of having to work harder for my team, you know, personally to keep their job during this crisis. Would you say that's like a type of dress or feeling or just a place that you never thought you would be in? We're living through like the first pandemic. Your business is probably doing better, like you said, 
right now. Do you know what I'm saying? I find like the situation that you're in kind of fascinating, personally. It's complicated because on the one hand, news organizations in recent years have all seen a decline in revenue, right? I'm, you know, back to David's question, the two comments connect, but we have print circulation, we have print subscribers here in Israel for our daily newspaper, and then we have, excuse me, around the world for international edition. We have revenue that comes in just from the volume of traffic that we get online. So our website is open, but no subscription needed, but we get money from the ads that appear there and how many impressions they get. And then we have a model we call Premium Plus online, where if you pay $5 a month or $6, you get an ad-free website. And then we have conferences and we have commercial partnerships. We got all these different types of things. Conferences are dead right now, right? So, you know, we, we were supposed to have a big conference in London. That, that's a source of revenue that we're not the only ones who are facing that. But I think that on the one hand, you're right, there's more interest and our traffic is up and our circulation might be up. But if you look online at advertising revenue right now, the amount of money you used to get per thousand impressions is down. So even though traffic's up, we're still kind of just about where we, we, we were, right, a few mm -hmm. months ago. So it's, it's all, you know, and you're facing, you're looking at an industry, the news industry, which has anyhow been in decline and has been having to reinvent itself as print circulation drops and you see that steady decline, but digital is up. How do you compensate for, the, for that loss? So everybody in, in my position, in my chair, is facing the same challenge, I think, around the world. And sadly, look, we saw last week what happened. Jewish Chronicle, the Jewish mm -hmm. News, both in the right. UK shutting down, the Canadian mm -hmm. Jewish News in Canada shutting down. This is just the beginning, right? And so I agree with you that I feel responsibility. I'm not the owner of the newspaper, right? But as the, the person who is in the boss of, you know, almost 100 different employees to do whatever I can to make sure that we remain viable economically, that we are still essential at what we do and that we continue to do a good job and we continue to hit those numbers so people come to us and people understand why they need us. Can you just tell me, what, what was the craziest story in the current crisis? Number one is a story put on page one today, which is about this Israeli guy who is the courier for bone marrow around the world, right? So if, if an Israeli needs a bone marrow transplant, if a some American needs Israeli bone marrow, he is the guy who, who takes the stuff on the plane in those medical containers and flies with them around the world. But the problem is, is that wherever he goes, he can't get off the plane because there's quarantine. There's quarantine in New York, there's quarantine in LA, there's quarantine in Europe, there's quarantine in Israel. So he can't, he can't really get off the plane and he comes to Israel, especially where anyone who comes off now based on the new regulations gets sent to a hotel for two weeks. So what does he do? So that's just, you know, I found that to be inspirational. A guy who's basically said, listen, and, and by the way, this isn't his job. He does this as a volunteer. He was put on unpaid leave at his work. And he says, you know what, this is what I'm doing now to help save lives. So that's just, you know, that's some out there story. Never would have thought about this, but it's, uh, but it's inspirational. The thing that's also, you know, did it shock me? No, but does it sadden me? Yes. Is I just see how these, how everything is, so much is politics. I don't say everything, but so much is politics at this time, right? And it's a time when a country is meant to be focused on one single objective. How do we save lives? And instead, part of my language, but they're dealing with the shit of how do they build, you know, uh, how, how do I make sure that I get the credit as opposed to that politician? And how do we uh, make sure that, you know, that this happens, but this guy, this politician doesn't get elevated while I do all these different things that are going on that should not be happening.
And unfortunately, they continue to happen. I would assume that you, you're a little annoyed with everything that's going on based on some of the articles that you've <laughs> written <laughs> over the last. I think your criticism is totally valid, but what I would like to know is what you would like to see happen a little bit better in terms of the organization and the things that you've covered in terms of the crisis, because obviously we're all annoyed that the politics are getting away, but like you have to admit, they, they have done somewhat of a good job keeping us safe. We're considered the safest place to be. What's like a major thing that you would have done differently? Just because, you know, you've been exposed to a lot more than probably David and I have in terms of the know of what's going on right now. It's not about what I would have done differently. I think it's more what the country, I think, should have done differently. I think that Netanyahu made some very good decisions early on. We were the first country, for example, to stop flights from China and other places around the world. Very smart, and it helped stop the spread of the virus. I think where he made some mistakes was centralizing all of the authority at the, in the National Security Council and basically at his office. And in a country like Israel, for better or for worse, the defense ministry is the largest, most capable and powerful body, agency, organization, whatever you want to call it, right? They can just get stuff done like no one else can in this country. And I'm pretty sure... And this is, you know, I don't have the scientific data to back it up, but I'm pretty sure that had we early on handed over some authority, more authority to the defense ministry, to the IDF, to the Home Front Command, we'd probably be at the testing numbers that we'd want to be at this stage, or at least closer to them than just 7,000, which is where we are. Again, I know nothing about medicine, but I read and hear what people are saying. You listen to the head of the WHO. He says, do what South Korea and Singapore did, do massive testing. And we're not. We're doing 6,000, 7,000. Right. Naftali Bennett, the defense minister, said weeks ago that we should be doing 50,000 tests. And I remember at the time thinking, is this guy delusional? I mean, the director general of the health ministry is saying, yeah, we should do about 5,000. Bennett comes out and says 50,000. At the time, it was strange. Why is this guy pushing 50,000? I think that now we kind of know that he was probably, he was right, right? That's what we should have been aiming for. There are things like that. There was, look at what happened just this week with the flights returning from outside of Israel, right? right. The defense ministry two weeks ago brought a proposal to the cabinet and said, let us take these people and put them into hotels because as they come back, they're spreading the virus. By the way, I saw one statistic somewhere 400% increase because of people who came back from outside of Israel in terms of the spread of the virus, right? Two weeks ago, we could have been isolating these people. We weren't. Now this week, they suddenly made the decision. Now I ask you guys, right? You're intelligent people. You've been around the block. Why did this not happen earlier? They declared it a few times. We've already heard news reports like four or five times that Bibi said, it's gonna happen and then it didn't happen. happen. Herb Kanan, our diplomatic long veteran reporter and commentator, wrote a great line where, where I spoke to him about this issue a couple weeks ago, and he, and he hit the nail on the head. He said, you know, if Netanyahu was still defense minister, because remember, until four or five months ago, he was defense minister. If Netanyahu was still defense minister, do you really think he wouldn't be activating the defense minister? Of course he would. Of course he would. But because he's not Good the defense point. minister... You know who is the defense minister? It's Naftali Bennett. And the two of them knock heads all day long. Well, They're political rivals. Yaakov, you were an advisor to Bennett for a while. You think based on his background being, he had a tech company. I mean, Netanyahu was never an entrepreneur, never had to solve problems the way somebody in Naftali Bennett's position professionally before politics ever did. Do you think that has, I mean, you have more of an insight to his personality. Why do you think, was it just to one-up Netanyahu? And it was the one who went out to B'nai Brock. In my opinion, he's showing himself to be a very level-headed 
person that can handle this type of crisis, and he's not well, receiving a lot of criticism like the other leaders for breaking rules. Bennett, to his credit, and I have criticism also of some of the things that he's done throughout this crisis as well, but to his credit, one of the things that he has, which serves him sometimes very well, but sometimes also works against him, he's an out-of-box thinker. And he's quick on his feet and he just, bureaucracy means like very little. So just like, let's do it. Let's just move. Why aren't we moving, right? So he's very quick to give out an idea, but implementation, sometimes between the light bulb moment and when you're working in government until you can implement, there's a big, big journey that you got to go through. He's very good at the light bulb, but sometimes more complicated to implement. I think that I'm not going to grade who is better, B.B., Bennett, this guy, that guy. What I think we just didn't have and we still don't have is a government that's working in sync together the way they should be looking at that overarching objective. How do we keep Israelis safe, alive, healthy? And how the hell do we get out of this situation? That is what we need right now. So do you think that Gantz was wrong to make the move that he did to go for a national unity government? And now, you know, today, you know, not getting renewed, possibility of another election, got what, 21 days, anybody could form a government. If- I supported the move at the time. I wrote in favor of it. thought it was a bold move as well, personally. Right. thought it took a lot I, of guts. I thought it was a bold move. I thought it took guts. It came at the expense of ripping apart his party, right, which which has become divided. The important thing to keep in mind, and this is whether you like Netanyahu or you don't like Netanyahu, is that Netanyahu is staying prime minister, right? Under the, the all the realistic scenarios, you're stuck with Netanyahu for the next foreseeable or unforeseeable future, for, for better or for worse. To the extent that the election was about Netanyahu, Netanyahu won. Perfect, exactly. One of the reasons I think that Netanyahu is keeping the decision-making to himself is because what they're doing, what they've been doing all along, trying to balance the health ministry, which says shut it all down, maximal shutdown. Finance ministry, which says death and destruction have many faces. You don't want to destroy the economy. You got to get, you know, this pressure to open it up again. And the defense ministry, which says there's a lot of stuff that nobody can do that except us, let us in there. And he's sort of triangulating the decision-making in the best case leaving aside the politics, because coalition fighting is also a thing. And today I looked at the numbers, and I looked up a Jerusalem Post article that talked about Israel's healthcare capacity. Israel has like 3,000 ventilators, maybe by now 4,000. Israel has the curve of how many people are using ventilators. It's like it's flattening out at around 200. Again, I'm assuming that ventilators are the key bottleneck in capacity. I could be wrong. Could be other stuff. Could be staff. I don't know. But let's say using ventilators as a proxy for healthcare capacity. To me, it looks like, yeah, we flattened that curve. Maybe we flattened it too much. 200 compared to 3,000. 200 is what we're at now. It's what looks like the apex. And we have a lot more capacity. Maybe we should have, shouldn't have been quite so, such a chokehold. Maybe we should start to ease things up. What, what's your take on all of that? There's so many different models here. There's a model that we could have taken from the beginning, which is just the people who are in the higher risk categories need to go into quarantine and everyone else goes out, right? So we go out, kids go out, everybody goes on with life. But like, you know, you'd say 55 or 60 and up and, and anyone who has underlying conditions or immune system issues, right? Or whatever it is, you create you know, criteria. They decide not to do that. And, and I think that when we look at how this virus spreads and we see what happened in places like Italy, we see what happened in places like New York, we see the dilemmas that the medical staff there are facing of, you know, who do I who do I intubate? Who do I not intubate? I would not want to have my country in that situation. Right. And I think that if the price we pay as a society is that we got to shut down for a bit, 
and it's tough and we're losing tons of money and you have over a million people who are out of jobs. I got to hope that there's a way to bring that back. I got to hope that we can recover from this. But I also say if this is the price, I mean, I look, you know, I'm, I'm one example. I'm blessed. I still have a work. I still have income, but there are some people who don't even have that. But I think that overall life does have to come first and, and we have to protect the, the people who are most vulnerable. And I think that's what we're doing as a society. So I think we can also pat ourselves on the back to some extent. The question now though is once we've locked down, how do you get out of here? And I think that that's where we need some really smart people thinking about how do we gradually break away from this situation, but at the same time not lead to another outbreak as an example? And then what? And then what do we do? Ramping up the testing is crucial to that. I think ramping up the testing is crucial. I think, I mean, just, I've read so many different ideas of, of the way to do things. We, we ran a story today about uh, one guy who's a mathematician, physicist from Bar-Ilan University. He came up with an idea that we do alternating work weeks. So like, you know, you guys work one week, I work the next week, and you do that throughout the entire economy. And then if, let's say, God forbid, I'm sick, but I work this week, and then my symptoms appear the week I'm not working, then I'm contained, right? If my symptoms appear the week I'm working, I go home. So I'm contained also. So it's like, but this, but I minimize the scope of the spread. So that's one idea. There are other ideas of creating green zones and red zones, right? So, you know, you know, an area, a city, a neighborhood, or I don't know, a factory that is, everyone is clean, you let them work, right? But to do the green zone, red zones, you got to test. Any of these models require significant testing, and we're just not there. And I think that that is, we spoke about some of the problems with the way the government has done things. I'll just give you one other example. You know, uh, the Mossad, I have a lot of respect for these guys. They do incredible, awesome stuff all over the world all the time. Do we need the Mossad to get us masks and ventilators and stuff like that? I don't know. I mean, you know, the health ministry knows how to buy this stuff usually. The defense ministry knows how to fly missiles into Israel during times of war, right? We have Supposedly there's an intelligence war going on right now between countries over ventilators. I've heard that too, and I've read that. But, you know, I also see like, you know, stories about how Sayaran Matkal and the Navy SEALs in Israel are also helping and working on stuff. And I say to myself, Sayaran Matkal, right, the most elite unit in the army, the fact that they're involved in trying to locate ventilators in hospitals and help up the number of tests and stuff like that. I mean, Golani could do that, right? Like, but let's be honest. If I tell you an Israeli, hey, Golani's on the case or Sayyar Makal is on the case. If I tell an Israeli, hey, you know, the health ministry is buying ventilators or the Mossad is buying ventilators. That, that gives us a feeling of confidence. Where's the Mossad getting stuff from? Some of it is coming from Gulf states. Right, some of it's coming from states that Israel does not have formal relations with. Now, the funny thing is, we're shifting in this world from a world where you can't go to Iraq unless you're a journalist and blah, 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 blah. But you basically can't go to Iraq because Iraq is technically at war with Israel. But you can't go anywhere because you can't go anywhere. Right. So all you have is Zoom. But you can Zoom with people in Iraq as much as you want. We're in a reality where we need all hands on deck, that's for sure. But I also think is that what we're seeing, the fact that we need the Mossad or Sayer and Matkal to be involved now is amazing. And it talks about Israeli ingenuity and improvisation and adaptation and all these amazing, cool Israeli characteristics. But you got to say to yourself, where's the health ministry? Where were we all these years? And I'll tell you where we were. For over 15 years, we have literally destroyed our health system. We haven't invested the amount of money. Medical staff, look at any OECD chart, and we're, we're part of the developed world. And you look at where we rank 
in terms of numbers of doctors per capita, numbers of nurses. By the way, you know where we excel, unfortunately, is number of mortality affections that people contract while in hospital that they shouldn't be getting. Right. That's where we excel. You know why? Because we have crowded, overstuffed hospitals. So look, they're stepping up to bat, you know, to plate. But why wasn't the government investing where it needed to invest for the last 15 years? And that, that's a mistake. That's a stain on us as a country and a society. Yaakov Katz, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. It has been really fun and an honor. Really amazing. Uh, the Israel Innovation Fund lets you plant vines through our program, Wine in the Vine. And you can plant vines at wineinthevine.org and help support Israeli charities. There's some really important charities, especially now, especially during the crisis. This is In the Blue Corner. I'm David Hazoni, Executive Director of the Israel Innovation Fund. Yaakov Katz, I'm Scott Bellis. Thank you very much. It's been really amazing.